The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Can we give it up for our story team this morning? Wow, what a great job. I, uh, I, it's so cool to watch people uh, exercise their gifts and how God's created them and what a story they've just told. We've been in this series called This Absurd Life and uh, the wisest man who ever lived is examining all of these things that we have the tendency to put our trust in. And he's making this statement about the things that we put our trust in and he said, it's actually absurd if you think those things are gonna advance your life and bring satisfaction to your life. And our story team has told that story so extremely well. And that really hits home when the reality of life and death is near. And so I just wanna thank, one more time, can we just thank our story team for telling such a great story? <clears throat> They've been working on that for, for several months and I'm excited for the future and how we're gonna tell more stories in our church. And if you'd like to be involved with that, uh, you'll hear more about that here in the future. If you've got a Bible today, we're gonna continue our series called This Absurd Life. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, we're in chapter five, starting in verse 10 today. Um, and so Solomon has worked through all of these ideas. He's talked about how it's absurd to put your hope and your trust in your work and your pleasures and your power, um, even in the pursuit of injustice. Um, He's also talked about how absurd it is to put your hope in your work. And uh, today, uh, the richest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived, is going to approach the idea of money. And he's going to talk about how absurd money is. If you're here for the first time today, I just want to say to you, um, welcome to the day we talk about money. And uh, we don't normally do that, but we've got this uh, desire, this passion, the way we do things. We like to preach the whole counsel of God. And so we're working through a book. And today just happens to be talking about money. Um, Let me pray for us. We're going to jump right into the scripture. And I hope it's going to be instructive for you today. Jesus, thank you for your word. It's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And God, this morning, I pray as we read that, the scripture would do so. And you promise us in your word when the scripture does that, then all things and all things and all things are laid open and bare before the eyes of you with whom we have to live. And so God, we pray for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You know, money intersects every aspect of our life. You can't escape it. It's in education. It's in religion. It's in politics. It determines how much health care you have. If you have any, it determines your living situation. It determines the cities that you're willing to endure. You understand this. Money brings happiness. It brings anxiety. It brings depression. It brings joy. There are so many things that money introduces into our lives, both good and bad. And some of us like to wish that there was just a money tree in the backyard, right? We hear rich people say, yeah, but money is not going to make you happy. And when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, but I just at least like to try for a moment, right? You know what I'm saying? And so Solomon is beginning to introduce how absurd putting our hopes and our dreams in money is. Money can facilitate great things. Money can dig wells. Money can provide education. Money um, can support kids in third world countries, but money can also create civil wars. Money can divide homes. Money can put weapons in the hands of evil dictators. But the reality for most of us is that when we look on Amazon, we find an endless list of books that speak to how you use money wisely. And sometimes it can be a challenge. Like, like where do I even begin? What book should I read about how to use our money lives? And so it just speaks to this idea that all of us want to use our money better. 
But the question before us this morning is not what does Amazon say or what does a book say, but what does the Bible say about money? So we're going to jump back into Ecclesiastes. We're going to listen to the wisest man who ever lived. He also happened to be the richest man who ever lived. He knows a thing or two about finances. Dave Ramsey, as amazing as he is, and as much as I love to listen to him, he ripped off the original financial guru. And this morning, we have the opportunity to hear what he has to say. And so let me just posture this before you before we jump into Ecclesiastes. Solomon is going to challenge the way we view money. He's going to challenge the way we use money. He's also going to say the way we view it, the way we use it is an indication of the spiritual condition of our souls. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 10 this morning. Here's what I want you to see. As we read through this passage together, I want you to just kind of grasp a few things. One, Solomon's going to posture before us some indicators of what it looks like to live a financially unstable life. And he's going to posture some of those things, and I hope you'll see those this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 10, this is what he says. Whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. There's that word again. This is what we based our entire series around. This idea in Hebrew, it's called hevel. We see it 39 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon uses that to describe all of these things we pursue in life. Now he's gonna use that word in the context of money. This too is meaningless. Um, if you remember, if you've been around here since we began this series, hevel is this idea, like as if when we're kids, we look up at the cloud and we think there's some weight and it's heavy and there's some substance there. But the first time we get on a plane and plow through the cloud, we realize there's nothing there. There's no substance. It's meaningless. And we translate that word absurd. And so that's quite the statement from the richest man who ever lived. It's quite the statement from Solomon. But let me be clear for just a moment. Let me be clear. I saw this thing on Instagram just a few weeks ago and it said, money is the root of all evil. I'm like, that's, 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 that's not what the Bible said. What does the Bible say? What Solomon says here, it's not money that is the root of all evil. What does he say? The love of money, the love of wealth. And so Solomon says there's a symptom. There's a symptom to tell you whether or not you love money. And the symptom is this, you can never get enough. The first indicator of a financially unstable life is that you're never satisfied. There just never seems to be enough. Have you ever thought about why you can never get enough? You ever thought about why you're never satisfied with what you have and why you always want more? Uh, to put it practically, sometimes we say, if I just had a little more money, if I just had a little more money, it could solve these problems and these problems would disappear. There's a few issues with that statement. There's a few issues with that line of thinking. And the first is this. Most of our problems with money are surrounded by this idea of materialism. And materialism has a lie that tells us if you get something new, it will bring worth to your life. You know what I'm saying? The problem with that is Apple comes out with a new iPhone every single year, right? And so you get a new iPhone, you have this self-worth, but then I, Apple comes out with iPhone 11 and you're like, I'm just not as worthy as I was the year before. And so I have to have a new iPhone. And so this idea of money, like if I just had more, I could solve more problems. The first problem is that that, that, that whole idea is wrapped around this idea of materialism and the lie that materialism postures to us that if you just had more, it will solve more problems. And it's a circular way of thinking. The second problem with that idea is that the book of reality, 
the book that helps us see life through a very clear lens, never mentions to us that money is ever going to solve any problem. And you're like, yeah, but it could solve my problem of, of buying better treatment for cancer. Yeah, but it could solve my problem of having a better legal team. Yeah, it could solve my problem of being able to see my family more often. And see, the problem with that is that th those, are, those are physical needs in your life, and the scripture is very clear. God's going to provide for those physical needs. But the issue that Solomon is trying to drive towards is not your physical needs. It's something much deeper than your physical needs. And so verse 11 tells us what that problem is. Verse 11 says this, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. In other words, the more you get, the more you want. And what benefit are they to the owners? And Solomon says, except to feast their eyes on them. Solomon says the only benefit of having money is that you just have more stuff to look at. You get more money, you have more stuff to look at. And so what we know from experience is that when we add more to our life, and it doesn't satisfy, the response is rarely that, that, uh, the response is rarely that we give up on greed. The response is usually we just want more. And so Solomon says there's a circular argument here that money tries to lie to us about. Rockefeller was once asked how much more, you remember what he said, just a little bit more. And so greed has this vicious cycle. This vicious cycle that takes us around and around and it seems impossible to escape. It rarely satisfies. And we know this when we look at the lives often of rich people. Just this week, I read an article by Jim Carrey and uh, Jim Carrey's come to this really sad place in his life where, where he's becoming self-aware of what is going on in life, which is a good thing, but his conclusion is much different than where we would arrive in the Bible. And so he's describing, he's being asked, how is it that you arrived at this place? And this is what he said. I guess just getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and you realize that you're still unhappy and that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you've accomplished everything you ever dreamt of and more. And then you realize, my gosh, it's not about this. I could be wrong on Jim Carrey's story, but wasn't Jim Carrey the guy that slept in his car to come out to Hollywood to make it in the industry? And then he made it, he's done it, and this is his realization. It's not about this. And then he says, I wish everybody could be able to accomplish it so that they can see that. And so we see this idea that the love of money is this one-way relationship. We put so much in, but it never returns the same investment back. Now, listen, the opposite of greed is generosity. The opposite of greed is generosity. For most of us, generosity is an acquired taste. It just doesn't come naturally. We grow into it, and it's not something that is just naturally within us. The most generous man I know is the guy that I call my pastor. And I don't know if he coined these phrases, but I want to give him credit for it. And he said, you don't have to be wealthy to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. He also said, you never miss what you give away. And there's only one day a year that I want to challenge him on that last phrase. You never miss what you give away. The one day a year that I want to challenge him on that thought is tax day, right? Because on tax day, not only do I miss the taxes that I give away, but on tax day, I'm required to list all the charitable contributions that I've had for the prior year. And when I'm listing all the charitable contributions from the prior year, I have this moment, this, this, in this moment where I'm like, I, what could I have done? I could have put my kids through private school. I could have bought a new car. I, I, could, have, I could have funded this. I could have gone on a couple nice vacations. So I had this, this, this one moment a year where I'm like, I, do I really miss what I've given away? 
For most of us, generosity is an acquired taste. But let me testify to you this morning. I have never missed what I have given away. I have never been disappointed and dissatisfied when I'm generous. But can I testify to you this morning? But when I'm greedy, I find that I'm dissatisfied. I find that I miss a lot in life. The first indicator that there's a financially unstable life happening is that you're never satisfied. You always want more. Then Solomon goes on in verse 12. He gives us a second indicator. Verse 12 says, the sleep of a worker is sweet, whether they eat little or whether they eat much, but as for the rich. Now let's be clear here. Solomon's not making a blanket statement over everybody that has money. When he talks here in verse 12, he's tying it to verse 10 and 11. And he's clearly saying those who have been greedy over wealth and now they've achieved that wealth. And this is what he says. Their abundance permits them no sleep. What's Solomon saying here? Solomon's saying that the inevitable consequence of greed is this insomnia of worry. The inevitable consequence of greed is the insomnia of worry. It's an inevitable consequence, even if you don't have money, by the way. Oscar Wilde once said, there's only one class of people that think about money as much as rich people, and it's people who are not rich. Worry is inevitable, even if you don't have money, but there's a lot of irony and greed here. Like we want money, we chase money, we love it, we get plenty of it, and then we worry about it. And then the more we have, the more we worry, the more we think about money and the more problems that it brings and the more people who follow us who want a piece of the pie. Who knew Puff Daddy was such a theologian? Mo money, mo problems. In most parts of the world, uh, most people who are just regular, ordinary workers, never, they don't have this concept that we have in Western culture about climbing a career ladder. They're just making enough just to survive. And I have this thought. I imagine that for them, worrying about losing wealth is, is not a primary concern for them. I could be wrong on that. But for most people who make an ordinary, livable wage, they don't worry about whether they lose their wealth because they really never had it in the first place. However, for those who are wealthy, for those who are wealthy, there's this constant threat of losing what you've built, losing what you've acquired. And so maintaining wealth is every bit as stressful as gaining wealth. And so Solomon's trying to posture before us that greed just doesn't demonstrate itself by this love of money, but greed also demonstrates itself by worrying over it. Um, this is convicting to me. This is convicting to me because I've got a mortgage the size of Big Mama's Pizza, right? Uh, because LA, I've got this huge mortgage and I, and I worry often. I worry about the housing market crashing. I worry about putting so much towards housing expenses. I have nothing for education for my kids or retirement later on. I worry about the big one happening because I don't have earthquake insurance and losing everything with nothing to sell to gain it back. This is convicting to me because I often worry about money. Do you get that feeling? You get that feeling, right? You go to the ATM, you put your card in, it spits the cash out, and then it gives you that receipt. And if you ask for it, it'll tell you what your balance is. You understand what I'm talking about. You understand this idea of worry. And Solomon is going to posture to us this morning that worry is not really an issue of my physical needs. God's going to provide for those. It's not really an issue of my income. Solomon's driving deeper here and he's saying, worry is not an issue of income. It's not an issue of, of, of physical wants and needs. It's really an issue of my heart. The first 
thought about a financially unstable life is that you're never satisfied. The second is that you're always worried. And then the third, Solomon is going to say here, the third indication is that you're a hoarder. <laughs> that you're a hoarder. I don't mean like your house is unwalkable and unlivable. Solomon's going to posture this idea to us in verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. He said, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. There's a difference here between hoarding and saving. Saving can be an incredibly good thing. I save for my kids' education. I save so I can buy a car with cash so I don't have to go in debt. Saving can be an incredibly good thing. Hoarding, on the other hand, Solomon says, is something entirely different. And it may not just mean that you've hoarded uh, this massive bank account that's going to be used for purposes later. It can also be this idea that you work for everything you can get and then you spend everything you have selfishly. You, this is a fear-based, selfish stockpiling. And Solomon's going to connect this, this, uh, this hoarding idea to pain. This is what he says in Uh, verse 14, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. And everyone comes naked from their mother's womb as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil and they can carry nothing in their hands. It connects this idea of hoarding to pain. At some point, it's all gonna crash down. It's all gonna come crashing down in an instant. I got a call last night while we were having dinner with a precious family um, and, and it was my mom and it was 11 o'clock about thereabouts on the East Coast and she had just found her best friend dead on the floor. At some point, it's all gonna come crashing down. At some point, it's all gonna come crashing down. We're gonna leave the same way we came in, naked, no settlement statement to take with us into eternity. And Solomon says that the practice of your life is this selfish, fear-based stockpiling. Earn all you can, spend all you get on yourself. Solomon says you've got a real indicator here of a financially unstable life. By the way, I believe that's a myopic view of life if you don't see eternity as valuable as the present. Because of Jesus alone, your life is valuable. It also means the way you spend your money is valuable. First idea is this idea of never being satisfied. The second idea is worry. The third idea is that you hoard for selfish reasons. And then finally, Solomon's going to come to this last idea of a financially unstable life. And this is good because when we come to this final idea, it's sort of a pivotal point because we begin to realize what's happening in our life. Ecclesiastes chapter six, starting in verse one, it says, I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth. Now, let me pause here just for a moment and get outside of the sermon and and just pastor you and shepherd you. If you've bought into a prosperity gospel that if you just have enough faith, God's gonna give you more, I'm gonna tell you, you're reading the Bible wrong. God does not tell you if you have more faith, he's going to give you more. What the Bible does say is that whatever you have is a gift of God's grace to begin with. And I wanna tell you, if you walk in the presence of people who have more than you do, and that's a struggle for you, You experience anxiety, anger, depression because of somebody in your life that has more than you. I want to say to you this morning, this idea that whatever we have is a gift of God, whatever we don't have in the perception of it is a gift of God's grace. It's not that they're spiritually more superior than you. It's not that it's not they have more faith than you. We understand wealth is a gift of God's grace. So whatever somebody has in your life that you're not happy about, God gave it to them. Now, he says, so that they lack nothing that their hearts desire. 
In other words, there are people that have a lot and everything your heart could possibly want and desire and believe is good. Solomon says, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy it. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy it. The fourth indicator of a financially unstable life is this idea of disillusionment. Disillusionment is different from disappointment. Disillusionment carries this idea that you're sort of bummed out. You no longer believe in something. Something is not as amazing as you once thought it would be, right? It's kind of like moving to Los Angeles to work in the industry. And you have all of these ideas, and then you finally get here, and you're working 14-hour days, and you're making coffee runs for somebody else's dream, and you're like, this is not as amazing as I thought it was going to be. That's disillusionment. When you realize that something you've put your faith in is not going to satisfy. Now, this is actually a good indicator for you. If you come to this point, you're like, I realize I've loved money and it's not satisfying. This is a pivotal moment. This is a pivotal moment when God can step in and change your life. But it may seem ridiculous to some of us that wealth can bring about and lead to disillusionment. John Rockefeller was also, um, later on in his life, he struggled with this illness that removed the ability to enjoy basic food. And so at times he just could have a bit of coffee and just a bite of food was all that he could manage to keep down. Solomon says it can go that way with money. It can go that way. You can have it all, but still not enjoy it. And if you come to that place where you've loved it and you're now disillusioned, this is not as amazing as I thought it was going to be. Solomon says you're in a really good place. Now, can we transition all the bad stuff here this morning into a new and better way to live, a new and financially stable way to live. I've been in ministry now for 17 years. And um, every week as a pastor, you get prayer requests. You get prayer requests for relational reconciliation. You get prayer requests for housing. Um, You get prayer requests for sickness. Um, I don't think I've ever gotten a prayer request for somebody who's dealing with greed in their heart. I don't believe it's because that we don't believe that greed is wrong. I believe it's probably because we don't believe we struggle with greed. For most of us, greed, uh, money has this idea that it will solve my problems. It's going to secure some sort of future, a preferred future. It's going to solidify my status in society. And when it doesn't do that, we wrestle with the thoughts of anger. We wrestle with depression. We wrestle with anxiety. Those are the ways that most of us respond when we're around people who have more than us and it deeply affects us. It, it digs into the soul of who we are. Now, Jesus talked about money more than sex. He talked about money more than heaven. He talked about money more than hell. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he postures this idea that we can never serve two masters. He's talking about money. You can't serve two masters because you're going to hate one and you're going to love the other. Some of us, though, may think that's ridiculous. I can love money and still love Jesus. Is it really, though, a ridiculous thought? Are you sure this morning that you don't treat money as an idol in your life? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of evil. Not the only one, by the way. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Why do you think that money is a root of evil? Not the only one, just one of them. Why do you think money is a root of evil? Like any other idol, The reason it's a root of evil is because it replaces God. It corrupts your soul. 
It doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are. Greed can affect everybody. Now listen, here's the good news Solomon's going to posture to us. Here's the solution. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19 and 20. Moreover, God gives someone wealth and possessions. And listen to what he says. And the ability to enjoy them. To accept their lot and be happy in their toil. This is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Can I tell you what Solomon's saying here this morning? Money is not your problem. The appetite for money is. We abuse money, it's wrong. But avoiding money is also wrong. That's not what Solomon's saying. Just, just live a life of power. That's not what Solomon is saying. He's interjecting a little bit of hope here for us. He's interjecting a little bit of hope here. And this is a description that Solomon's going to lay before us this morning for a financially healthy and stable life. A financially healthy life has a right and proper enjoyment of money. A right and proper enjoyment of money. And that right and proper enjoyment is combined, it's weaved through with contentment. Now, Dave Ramsey, if you listen to him, he's sort of a financial guru in the Christian realm. And he says, most people buy things they can't afford to impress people they don't like. I thought, what a great statement. (laughs) Isn't that a great statement? They buy things they can't afford to impress people they don't like. It's a cycle that we go through. We go into debt. We hoard money for ourselves in order to live in this realm of what our soul desires. So we take this physical realm and try to live in that realm of where our soul should naturally live rather than enjoying these things for what they really are. And Solomon says there's no enjoyment in pursuing money that way. But Ecclesiastes 5, 19 and 20 tells us how we can be content with money. One pastor says it like this. This idea of contentment that Solomon's talking about in 19 and 20 is what he calls blessed contentment. What does that mean? It means that your self-worth, your meaning, your faith don't depend on your bank balance. Your meaning, your self-worth, your faith don't depend on your bank balance. But being content with money implies that we view it the right way and we use it the right way. How do we view money in the right way? Well, we don't see money as the end. We don't see money as the goal. If you're like, my goal is to come to LA and just make as much money as possible. Solomon says that's the wrong way to view it. Solomon says, actually, that's absurd. But if you'll see it for what it really is, what is it really this morning? Money is simply a tool. Money is nothing more than a tool, nothing less than a tool. It's not morally bad. It's not morally good. It can be used morally bad ways and in morally good ways, but it can also be used for kingdom purposes. Um, Some of you know on Mondays, this is my day off. And on Mondays, I make an investment into my family. I take my wife to breakfast every Monday morning, along with my youngest son who's not yet in school. We drop him off at school. And I take my wife to breakfast, and it's our time together. Monday night, almost without exception, I take my entire family out to eat. And I've added up the budget. I keep a budget. And that budget comes to where somewhere around 200 bucks a month. That's $2,400 a year that I could save. But can I tell you how I view that investment every single week? That's an investment in my family. That's an investment in good things. That's a kingdom-worthy investment of my time 
and my money. The same thing applies to your investment in yourself, your family, your church. Money's a tool. It can bless. It can help. It can sustain. It can encourage. It can get the gospel out. Just this week, the last two weeks, I've been involved with a lady in our church who is blessing and encouraging somebody in our church in ways that that person doesn't even know, but she's doing it because she knows it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's the way we should use our money. Make investments of kingdom time and purposes. And these selfish investments that don't have kingdom return, they are the ones that have the potential to fool you with this idea of contentment. When you read these last two verses in Ecclesiastes 5, you can't help but to realize that God is mentioned four times here. It's not by accident. God's mentioned four times in this idea of money and being able to enjoy it. The reality is when you process your financial situation from that perspective, the towers of greed around your heart, they begin to fall. This idea that money is a gift from God. It should be helped to use a, to process other people's wealth. That we can use it when we understand it that way. I don't have to be jealous because a friend has more. I don't have to be jealous because somebody has something else that I don't have. God gave it to them. They're not spiritually superior. It's just God's gift of grace in their life. And I want to say to you, if you don't process life this way, you're going to find it impossibly difficult to avoid judgment, and absurdity in how you deal with your money. By the way, we understand that life is a gift. Yesterday was a gift. Today was a gift. Tomorrow was a gift. Last night's phone call reminded me that today is a gift. Last weekend, last Sunday, coming back from a wedding with a couple in our church from Chicago to Los Angeles, a guy two rows behind me on the airplane, halfway between Chicago and LA, died on the airplane. Today's a gift. And if we don't process life that way, then we'll never come to this reality of, of not being able to judge and not being able to, to experience this absurdity, this meaningless meaninglessness on how we use our finances. So Solomon has sort of this conclusion. What we really need is not money. What we really need is satisfaction. It's this idea that drives to the deepest parts of our hearts, leaves peace and calmness and not this endless striving for more. Listen to me, church. Money cannot give you that kind of peace. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. The reality that Jesus left the riches of heaven, became poor for our greedy sins so that we could become his treasure. If you don't start there, then this absurdity of money is probably always going to be the theme of your life. We need more God-centeredness, not more money to be content. And we miss this. Listen, Christian, we miss this. We exact God out of the equation of how we use our finances, how we view our possessions. We forget that God is almighty, that he's the ultimate source of satisfaction. I can testify to you this morning. And I believe God was calling my family to come to Los Angeles. One of the, in the very early days, the first thing I did was take my phone out one night. And I sat on the couch with my wife when my kids went to bed and I opened up my real estate app. And I literally wept on the couch with my wife. 
In these moments, you got this choice. Do I obey God? Do I depend on God with my finances? Or I just decide I'm gonna live a life where I can continue to get more. Create this false wall of hope and satisfaction that eventually crumbles when it all ends. So if that's where you are this morning, you're like, I, 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 that's where I am, pastor. I've been financially unstable. How do I get to this new place? Can I offer three things before you this morning before we close? Number one, it's probably obvious, prayer. You're like, yeah. No, no, I, I mean very specific. You're in the presence of people who have more than you. Pray. God would allow you to see what they have as a gift. Pray that you're content with what God has given you. Second, understanding. Maybe you just need to know more about what the Bible says about finances. It's got a lot to say about how you use, how you view your money. Can I commend a book to you this morning? Besides the Bible, which I would commend you to go there first. It's Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Maybe you need to get more understanding. You need to spend some time in prayer over your finances. But lastly, can I commend this to you? Generosity. Generosity. I'm not unaware that here in Los Angeles, maybe even people in this auditorium, we're, we're, we're literally living day to day, barely scraping by. But can I just, just humbly, compassionately, as one of your pastors here, posture this before you. Don't be fooled by this idea that one day when I get more, then I'll become generous. You'll never get there. You'll never get to generosity if you think one day when I have more, I'll become generous. You don't have to be wealthy to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. For some of you, that, that's $5. Some of you, I'm not, and I'm not just talking about the tithe in this place this morning. I'm talking about generosity with your money, generosity with your time. If you don't learn to be generous now, I promise you, you won't be generous if and when you find more wealth. I want to close this morning by reminding us that your life is a gift of God, but eternity is a gift of God as well. And if you've never started there with the realization that Jesus left the riches of heaven for you, became poor, died for your greedy sins, that is the beginning point for beginning to reconcile a financially unstable life. It's only going to happen when you see Jesus that way. You can begin to release your grip on money when you understand that God made you his treasure. Your status, your security is firm when you see that Jesus is the solution, not money. I'm testifying to you today because I've lived in both and days I still live on the other side. Do you know Jesus this morning? Have you come to that place where you understand that Christ died for your sins? If you've never done that, I want to invite you into that this morning. In a moment of honesty before the Lord, acknowledging, God, I, I, I have sinned against you. This morning, I acknowledge that I need to turn from my sin and pursue a life with you as the foundation. That's your desire this morning. I want to encourage you to begin that conversation today, and we'd love to help you with it. After the service this morning, there's a table called the Connect Table. There are volunteers out there. One of our staff members is out there. And just say, hey, I'd like to know more about beginning a relationship with Jesus, and we'd love to begin to help you walk that path. The rest of us this morning, if you're wrestling with a financially unstable life, commit yourself to prayer, to understanding the scripture, to living a generous life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for today. 
God, thank you for the richness of your gift, though you became poor. The irony is that you made us rich in your grace, in your mercy. God, thank you that you loved us enough to die for us on the cross, solve our problems, to bring security. Jesus, I pray that as a church, we would realize that you're the solution, not the pursuit, not the love of money and wealth and possessions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.